Dallas, what's up, dude? Not a lot. How's it going? <laughs> Welcome to Free Range. Thank you for having me in. I'm excited uh, to spend bit. some time chatting with you. Yeah, man. You're uh so we were we were cruising around the other day and we we're we we're in the office and you stopped. Who are you with? You're with Isaac, right? Yeah, I was yeah. with the Ailments. Yeah, good, the Ailments. Uh, good family friends of mine. Uh those guys uh junior and senior they came over from easton which was a good a good uh poach for me because i got to poach senior from easton and then uh post or poach uh junior from shields so those are our tree experts here on site i know they're good people so the cool thing is is we started talking and you had a trip recently that was fucking insane and where at in africa were you at so i was in tanzania uh-huh. uh lake rukwa about two or three hour about a three hour flight in uh to a dirt landing strip outside of arusha nobody knows where that is so no so i mean arusha is where mount kilimanjaro is oh, okay and not too far from there is serengeti national park so right. that's how that's what most people would probably know from. There Tanzania. we go. And what what do you do? I guess for most people, like what what is it that you do? What's your what's your what's your jam, dude? What do you do? So I guess I would describe myself as an international hunting videographer and photographer. Right. So I got started here in Utah probably ten years ago. Um, I was just filming moose hunts on the Wasatch, and I kind of built a name doing that. When people would uh, get these once in a lifetime tags, right? Uh, they'd call me up, and I'd go show them where the moose were if they'd let me tag along and just take photos and video, just because that's what that's what I love to do in my free time was just go out and video these hunts and take pictures. And then, yeah, a crazy evolution from there. I met some clients and we went to New Zealand. And then after that, I would say probably for like the last five years, it's been almost a hundred percent international, just every country you can think of. Yeah. So are you, are you going out with individual clients that are paying you specifically to take photos and video of their hunts or are you doing it for companies and going out with companies? Um, I do some with companies, mm-hmm. but primarily it's how I would describe it is I'm making expensive home videos on these epic adventures right. for private clients. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Like that's awesome. One, like I didn't know that profession actually existed. Yeah. <laughs> so now that I hear you say it, I'm like, of course that profession exists because if people are going to spend I don't know. Some of these hunts, like how, how expensive are these hunts? Crazy. Like yeah. hundreds of thousands of dollars. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. So what, I have so many questions. So I got to start with one, what, what's the most expensive hunt that you've heard of or been on? And you don't have to tell your client's name, obviously, but like how much is really expensive? Um, the craziest would probably be so there's two. The craziest for like an individual, like a single animal. Right. Um, I want to say a couple of years ago, I went to uh, Pakistan uh-huh. with a client for Markor. 
And they only give out, I mean, I want to say it's less than five permits a year mm-hmm. for Marcor. And so those tags are running about $150,000 for, for the, just, just the tag. That's just for the tag. That's so by the time you do your logistics, and obviously if you're going to Pakistan, you're probably going to, you're going north, uh, northwest. Are you going towards Afghanistan? Is that, is yeah. that where you're headed? Yeah, we weren't yeah. far from Afghanistan. Right. Um, Gilgit. And oh, okay. That's where we were. So, and where, what was the name of it? The animal? Uh, Markor? What is that? So essentially it's like the pinnacle of the Capra, the goat family. The, the and goat. so, yeah, so there's, so Capra is kind of, that's one of the hunts that I do a lot of filming for. Um, I should know exactly how many there are, but I want to say there's like 30 different. So like we've got like the mountain goat is in there. Um, we've got in New Zealand, you know, the tar right. and the chamois. Um, as far as the Ibex go, there's tons of Ibex. You know, there's right. four different Ibex in Spain and then there's the Ibex in Tajikistan and there's Bezor Ibex in Turkey and all over. And so a lot of these guys is, it's not, I mean, some of them I would say are, you know what I mean? Collectors, but I mean, all the people that I hunt with, they're more of a collector of like adventures. And that's what, that's what this is. Like they've hunted all these different countries for all these different species and different mountain ranges and different destinations and places. And, and so this was, uh, Usually this is the last one on the list that most people don't get to tick that box just right. because the barrier to entry is so crazy. I mean, there's only a handful of tags available a year and there's a large list of people who want those tags. And so supply and demand, you know what I mean? The price. Yeah. I can't even imagine because I've heard of tags going for obscene amounts of money, you know, at, at different auctions, like governor's tags and things like that, yeah. obviously. Uh, and I'm relatively new to the to the entire hunting world, so yep. I, I don't quite understand the whole thing and how it works. But I do understand supply and demand, so I do really understand that. In Utah, for instance, uh, like your moose hunts that you were going on, there's only so many tags of those that they get per yeah. year, and for the state of Utah, and I can't imagine they're very. They're, they're pretty few and far between, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, drawing one of those tags, I mean, a moose tag in Utah, if you aren't already deep into the points game, it's almost, you've got, you know, a, no, no chance. I mean, right. a f- less than 3% right. chance to draw, you know, 20, 30 years from now. Oh, wow. So it takes, I mean, moose right now, I don't know what max points in Utah is, but it's got to be getting close to, you know, 25 points. And so every year that you apply, you know, you start building points. But the thing is, there's probably a hundred guys who have max points and they're only giving out on the Wasatch, you know, say 10 to 15 moose tags a year. Right. And so the max point bracket is just getting bigger and bigger and there's not enough tags to fill it. And so that's the problem with, that's why it's so hard to get those tags. Well, that that makes sense. Uh, I, I do, I see a lot of moose. Which is one thing. Like I, yeah. I see a lot of moose in Wasatch. So I'm, I, I've been out a few times where I've been elk hunting and I'm like, oh, there's a giant bull. And then you glass it and you're like, wait a minute, that's a moose. And then you're like, oh, that's a moose. And then it's like, I, I was on a, a cow, uh, cow hunt a few years ago and I fucking found nothing but moose and bachelors, like yep. groups of bulls. And I'm like, all I need to do is kill a cow. <laughs> I can get the hell out of here. I spent like five days trying to find <laughs> some cows. Find and all I could find were 
big bulls and big fucking bull moose. And they were everywhere, it seemed like. Yeah. No, the Wasatch is good. The Wasatch has a good population of moose. So when you're... Like, like, is it word of mouth for you then? Like your clients will take you out and then they'll be like, oh, wait, hey, you know what? I know this dude, he can he can do this for you. So are you typically booked out years in advance or how does that work? Um, so I've kind of gotten to a point now. It took a lot. It took a lot to get to this point. I would say I've been doing this full time uh, for probably, probably going on close to six years now. Right. And so it started off, um, how I really got my start with, uh, private clients is I went with a client to New Zealand and was doing a, a stag hunt in New Zealand with a client. And he asked me to come back the next year and kind of be the in-camp photographer and videographer at the lodge right. during the rut, during the roar. And so I went back and I probably filmed, you know, that month I probably filmed you know, 15, 20 different hunters during that month, shoot red stags and whatnot. And then, uh, out of filming all those people, I think that year, you know, every year I'd probably pick up a couple of clients right. that were from the States or from another country. And they were like, Hey, you know, this awesome hardcover photo book you delivered to us. And you know, the video that we're right. sharing with all our family and friends, you know, we've got another hunt, like we're going on, we're going to Africa this year. Do you want to come to Africa with us? And then you know, they'll show the video to some of their friends and, Hey, we got a sheep hunt. Do you want to come film my sheep hunt? And I'll go photograph and film their sheep hunt. And, and so now, now it's kind of gotten to a point where, you know, I have, you know, let's say 20 clients that'll kind of hit me up, but I would say I've probably got like 10 core clients that at the beginning of every year, they'll kind of just shoot me their schedule and the big trips they have. And just kind of, they're all, all my clients now are all just, really close friends of mine. So it's right. just like, Hey, these are the hunts I got this year. If you, you know, if you've got some time or you got a month open, let's go hunting. So how do you break, how do you break into that? Like how, how is it that your genesis in this, were you taking photos and you were obviously like, cause how old are you? 28. You're 28. You've been doing this for five years, the last five years. So you're, I'm, I'm relatively good at math. So you're like, 23 ish and you're breaking into this. How did that happen? So it happened. Um, I would say I got a camera probably like my senior year in high school. Right. And then that's kind of when I made the transition. Um, social media was kind of coming around then. Like that's kind of when Facebook was kind of blowing up and there started to be like people like tines up and whatnot who were Mm -hmm. posting these, you know, videos and whatnot. And they had, you know, online forums going. And so I just started filming my buddies and then we were out on the bow hunt and I was having just as much fun. Like there were days when I was leaving my bow, you know what I mean? At the tent, I was like, I'm just want to film you guys. You know what I mean? I want to try and get this on film. And to me, like getting those shots and like taking photos and capturing those moments to me, that was just as good or better than pulling the trigger. Right. And so I kind of made a name on social media. Just my stuff was out there and enough people were seeing, you know, the moose hunts that um, the word got out. And I had some outfitters in Utah message me and just to be like, Hey, you know, we've had, uh, we've had a couple clients um, ask us if we knew anybody who could come and film their hunt. You know, we got right. an awesome elk hunt or a sheep hunt. And so I went on, uh, my first, uh, 
a buddy from Southern Utah called me who was working for Hunt and Fool. And he was like, we got a sheep hunter coming to the Newfoundlands and camera crew can't make it. Can you go film it? And I was like, yeah. I was like, just tell me where I need to be. And he was like, well, how much, like, what's your day rate? So I can tell him. And it caught me off guard because at first I was like, I was just, I was just going to go film it. I was (laughs) like, I just want to, I just want to go hunting. Like this camera is just a tool for me to hunt more. Yeah. And I think, um, and so I went and filmed that hunt and they went, they won best new show of the year that year, Hunt Full TV. Are you kidding me? No. And so, and my episode was one of the episodes I had a Canon Vixia handheld mic. I had no microphone. I had, you know what I mean? I probably had like three SD cards. And so ended up holding the tripod up in the air with my camera, like extended over his shoulder, shooting off a cliff. And he smokes this ram at like 30 yards and rolls it. And the footage is epic. And so that night I drove all the way back to town. I think I went to Best Buy and bought like a hundred dollar mic to come back and do like voiceovers (laughs) and like interviews and stuff like that. And then, uh, yeah, at the end of the trip, I think I charged them for like the week what I charge, you know, a day now. And when I got that check though, I looked at it and I was like, holy shit. I was like, I just got paid to go hunting. Right. And that's when the switch flipped. And I was like, I'm going to make this, I'm going to make this happen. And I mean, I've never, I've never went to film school. Like I'm, it's all just kind of, no, it's all just kind of self-taught, but I just, had that, I just had that drive, like in that moment where I was like, there's an opportunity here that if I just like keep pushing and like keep putting out good content, like I could get paid to hunt. Like I've always seen, I mean, you see it like all these people on TV and whatnot. And I've always heard, you know, like it's hard. Like there's not like these people are grinding it out. Like it's not, it's not what you think it's going to be. But I was like, I think this is a way to where I can just like create in this like pure form and just like go on these adventures and really like capture these moments to where I would say 95% of the time I'm more excited than the hunter almost always like in the moment like I just get absolutely (laughs) fired up behind the camera like usually I'm shaking worse than anyone and it's still (laughs) I mean still every single hunt it's the same thing and it doesn't matter if you know we're stalking in on a Cape Buffalo, you know right. what I mean? Tracking a wounded Buffalo or if we're in Texas and hogs are coming into the feeder, like right. to me, like being behind that camera and like capturing everything and like nailing the shot. Like right. that's what just like gets me going. And so. Have you, um, like all the places you've been in the last several years. So you've been to Kodiak been up there? Uh, no, haven't been, been to Kodiak. Kodiak. I've been on the peninsula. Okay. So I went and did a brown bear hunt on the peninsula. That was a wild hunt. So was that archery or rifle? Um, That was rifle hunt. Okay. Yep. So we went on the peninsula. Yeah. Crazy trip. I'd never, I'd never hunted big bears before. Yeah. Like I'd seen grizzly bears and stuff like that. But man, what a wild trip. Because you pretty much, I mean, on that hunt, um, I think we were on a spring hunt. Weather was crazy. Uh, so you're flying in. So you got to go into like, yeah. would you fly into Anchorage and then come down from Anchorage or did you go yeah. through, through like Juneau? Anchorage, or? maybe Juneau yeah. and then Cold Bay. 
Okay. And then from Cold Bay, then we flew in. Right. On the Onyx Super Cub. On a Super Cub? Landed, no, no. On the, landed on the beach. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And that was gnarly. I mean, it was a 14 day hunt. I think we were there 18 days because of weather. Right. And we saw 75 or 80 bears. Are you fucking kidding and me? And never got a shot. What? And so this is the crazy How is that possible? This is the crazy thing that people say we had I would say we legitimately had one opportunity is because you can't Have you hunted have you hunted brown bears? No, I'm going in May. That's uh, what I'm asking. Gnarly. Okay. So, yeah, that's I think that's I think when we were there whenever the season is. Uh, there's I don't know. I go on so many hunts and there's what I there's always a season. Right. Like any month of the year, week of the year, like I can tell you somewhere where there's something you can go hunt. Right. Um yeah, so we fly in and then it's crazy because you pitch your, you know, you pitch your tent, you know what I mean? Somewhere where you can kind of get like a windbreak or whatnot. And then usually the guides knows where the best glassing knob is to where you can see the most amount of country. And you just usually pretty close to your tent. Ours, we had two spots. One was like a half mile away, maybe. And then one was like 50 yards from the tent. Right. And you just get there. And you just dig yourself a hole and throw up your tripod and spotting scope and you just glass all day. You just right. sit there and bullshit and glass and drink coffee all day, <laughs> every day. And you see these bears, but the thing is you see them and you're like, oh, you're like, let's go chase that bear. But these bears are so big and I don't know what their stride is, but like, as the guide would say, he said, they have to come to you. Like you may, like if they're 45ing towards you, right? maybe you can, you can try and intercept them, but you said, mm -hmm. but you have to get in front of the bear. If you're behind the bear, you will never, by the time you get to where they were, they'll be another half mile away and they're looking for sows. Right. And so they're on the move. It's not like they're stopping. They're mm -hmm. just walking all the time. And out of, you know, 70, 80 bears, we never had one come towards us. They were always going away for us. We never had one. I mean, when we'd see them on the beach, they'd be going the opposite direction. There were maybe two or three times when we tried to cut one off and ambush it and they were on a sow and just gone. You know what I mean? You see them over a hill and you're like, all right, let's get over that hill and then we'll make another plan. You get over that hill and they're a mile away. Right. And so one morning we were having breakfast and the tent was kind of cracked open to like let some of the steam roll out of the tent. And the guide looks out and there's probably close to a 10 foot bear, like 75 yards away coming towards us on the right. beach. Guns in the other tent. <laughs> and by the time we bail out of the tent, he grabs a gun and jacks around and the bear was running over this embankment that was kind right. of our wind blocker of the tent. It may be maybe like a hundred yards. This mm -hmm. bear is kind of, I mean, it looks like it's moving in slow motion because it's so big. And we sprinted up to the top of the hill. And I feel like we could see like a half mile, like we could see a long ways in every right. direction. Gone. Never saw the bear again. And so that was our one in... 18 days. Yeah. That was our one opportunity. But I mean, we're seeing bears all day, every day. It's a crazy, it doesn't really make sense when I right. say it. It's like, how did you see 80 bears and not get one? But that was the one time we had a bear under a hundred yards. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I, I've, I've heard this like, from several people where, you know, depending, right. So weather dependent, you know, yeah. 
uh, size dependent. So maybe it's too small. Obviously, there's never a too big, I don't think. Uh, not that I'm aware of. But I've heard it's very, it can be very finicky. And there's a yeah. lot of there's a lot of bolos out there, guys that have gone up that have come back with zero bears. Yeah. Um, things definitely, a few things have to fall into place. And when they do, I mean, I think that bear can, you know what I mean? Come mm-hmm. right into your lap and you can get a, a close shot. But from where we were in the big country and also you're kind of in that tundra ground, which yeah. people don't understand walking on that. I did it in uh, the first hunt that kind of started my like drive. I went up, with some buddies, we drove up to the pipeline in Alaska uh-huh. and did a do-it-yourself caribou hunt off the pipeline. But that tundra, the only way I can describe it is, I mean, you've got your backpack fully loaded and it's like, there's all those clumps of grass and it's like, you're walking on a waterbed covered every two feet with a half deflated basketball on it. Oh, yeah, and that's just nice. like... You're everywhere. Yeah. You, every time you take a step, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you're just like sinking into the ground and like, there's nothing like giving back to your legs. It's just like sucking your energy out. So it's not something you can, it's like, oh, let's go like hike all day. No, you, you don't move very fast in that stuff. So I, have you had the chance to, have you gone to Russia? Have you gone to Siberia and hunted yeah. in Russia? Or yeah. Russia anything? was crazy. What'd you do in Russia? Uh, so I went on a tur hunt, mm-hmm. which that's another one that's, um, in that capper family. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like a mix between, they kind of look like Audad in right. Texas, kind of a mix between like an Audad and an Ibex. And yeah, that was a gnarly hunt. We went to Russia for, uh, so there's two, there's two different species there. There's the, um, I'm trying to think of mid-Asian tur, the mid-Asian tur and the Kuban. And so the first one, um, yeah, we flew into Moscow and then we drove and then we took another, took another like two or three hour flight. Then we drove like six hours way back into the mountains. Um, what country? Just sketchy country right next to where we were. I don't remember. Right. But we met up with these guys and we horsebacked probably like 15 miles back in, way into the mountains and got on some tur. And I mean, they told us the weather was going to be nice. Woke up morning two to like fully ground iced over like eight inches of snow. But the mountain we came up was so steep that we couldn't, it was too sketchy to get the horses out. Like the snow was like way too icy. And so the next day we had to call it and it melted just enough. But as we were going down the hill, like the horses were just falling and just like sliding down this hill. They'd slide like 50, 75 yards because the snow was building up in their horseshoes. So it was almost like the horses were walking on platforms. They have like eight inches of like eight inch snowballs under their, under their feet. And so we'd have like rocks and sticks and like horses are already wild. Like I'm all for horses. Like, and it's awesome when you have a 80 pound backpack and you can just throw it on a horse and they carry all your, all your gear and your duffel bag and your tent and food and everything. But dang, in these like Asian countries that I'm in, horses probably scare me the most. Yeah. Like when, when you see, you know what I mean? Like a saddle roll under one of these things and like they start going like, it's not like you're on a flat, soft ground. Like you're on the side of a mountain in the rocks, in the ice. And so, yeah, we finally, I mean, we led the horses down that mountain. It probably took, you know, 
a stressful and just drains your energy when you're just yanking on reins and they're ripping on your shoulders. And my bag, when my horse fell, it ripped my, I just had one of those heavy duty, like Cordura, you know what I mean? Like duffel bags shredded my, there was a nail like sticking out of the ghetto saddle. I think the outfitter probably built (laughs) and just ripped my bag and like my clothes are like all over the hillside. So that was, that was gnarly. Um, so we didn't get a coupon. Then we went, we drove like another eight hours to another area. First day we did probably the biggest hike that I've ever done. Um, I think we climbed, I don't know, five or 6,000 feet, just steep all day and got up into the top bowl where they were expecting the tur to be. And there were two I don't know, Russian grizzly bears right in the bowl that right. we were like, trying to find these turn. And so the guide was like, oh, well, it's not going to be any tur here. We got these freaking huge grizzly bears. And I was like, damn. And so that was a long, like 14, 15 hour day. Right. And so I was like, well, are we coming back up here tomorrow? Cause this sucked. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, let's just, I was like, let's just melt this snow and ride it out. Like I do not want to go down. And they're like, no, 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 we're going to, we're going to go. They're like, we got to go back down like get down back to camp at like midnight. And they're like, all right, well, we'll get you up at like four, do it again in the morning. It's like, damn. And they just freaking light up a cigarette and just roll to the top. And a lot of times they'll have their pack on and then they'll throw the client's pack on their back as well. A lot of times. Yeah. They're not drinking water Uh, either. No, nothing. No water. Like just like cigarettes, coffee and cheese. Yeah. And a lot of them are even overweight. And mm-hmm. just goats. Like it doesn't matter in these Asian countries. Like these guys are next level. Like they're mountain goats. Right. And so the next day, uh, we kind of moved down further, glassed from the road, found a big tur. Didn't hike nearly as far, but probably like a four hour hike up the mountain. And this tur was bedded like up on this like spine cliff. And we were watching it. And there was kind of a, there was kind of like an avalanche shoot right in front of us. And so we couldn't, and we were right on the pine tree line and my buddy, he's an awesome shot. And he was like, he's like, well, he's like, we're not getting any closer. So he's like, maybe I'll just try and post up here. He's like, let me try and like build a rock solid rest and just try right. and when he stands up, just shoot him in his bed, like way up on this cliff. And so we're setting up. And next thing I know, I like look back up to get my camera on and it's gone. And we're like, what the, like, literally we just got here. It was just sitting there chewing on some grass. And next thing we know it's in the chute and the thing feeds down to like 200 yards right in the middle of the avalanche chute. And he smokes it. Just like big, gnarly, heavy base. And they got those big, like C-shaped horns. Yeah. So that was cool. That was a cool hunt. And so you're, you've hunted like Siberia and Alaska and obviously you've probably been to BC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I love BC. And what all have you hunted up there? Um, I shot a really nice mountain goat yeah. in BC. That was cool. Um, yeah, I can't outfitter buddy of mine that I'd filmed with him for a while. He had a, a cancellation come up. Mm-hmm. So he called me last minute. And so I went up there in, uh, November, which was cool because most of the goats you see guys are shooting them in the summer, like yep. August, September. But I mean, in November, these things, it's like a woolly mammoth, like super long, like the cape, you don't, they look so much bigger and the hair right. is just like, and so it was hard because we didn't have enough daylight. We'd glass these goats up 
but there wasn't enough daylight to get to them. You know, a lot of them be like eight hour hike up just these icy shoots. And so um, we finally found one the last day that was in a decent spot, but the fog was rolling in heavy in the mornings. So we got up there. I could see him on this cliff. Um, and then right as I was trying to get set up to shoot like a hundred yards close, the fog rolled in and he vanished. And so we had a buddy down at the bottom of the mountain that was kind of hand signaling us. And we just kind of sat it out. And I was like, maybe we just go in there. Like we know he's with these nannies, just like right on top of him. I was like, it's going to be like bow range. And so we're sitting there and all of a sudden the fog clears and my buddy, I can see him just like waving his arms like crazy. And we look and this goat comes out and stands right on the edge of this cliff, like 90 yards. Drop down, set up the gun, smoke this thing. And he drops and he's like right on the edge of this like overhanging cliff. And I knew this was going to happen. And he just goes for it. Like last breath of air. He's just like, you, you aren't getting me. And just kicks off this cliff and boom. And it's like, from what we can see, it's like a 500 foot cliff. <laughs> and so he goes off and luckily there's like one dead tree laying sideways and just gets stuck right in that tree, maybe like 50 or 60 yards below the cliff. Right. And yeah, shot an awesome, awesome go in BC. And then on the pack out, we chose the wrong shoot. And so we walked like way down the mountain, down the chute. And we picked the wrong shoe. We should have gone one more over and we got to this cliff. And so, I mean, it was either go back up in the dark, which was going to be terrible. My headlamp dies right there. So now I have no light. And the guide's got this guide, Ryan Burrard. He's crazy bastard. He's got all this paracord. And so he's like, He's like, let's go. He's like, let's just lower ourselves off this cliff. <laughs> With paracord. And so he ties it. Well, he has me tie it on this tree. And the whole time I'm just like, oh my gosh. I'm like, this knot is like, so I'm, I just do like 50 knots. I'm like, this is like our lifeline. And so we lower down the packs first and we looped them in a way that we could release them. And so now our packs are off the cliff. Right. And we're sitting there and he's like, I hope there's not another cliff below this because we can't see it's dark. Right. I mean, we have no idea. And he's like, but we're committed now. Like once the pack hit, he's like, all right, we're committed. And so he climbs down at first, sketchy, just like icy, rocky, probably like 20 feet. So he goes off, then I go off and then we start making our way down and then we hit another one. And I'm like, dude, this is not looking good. Like if we come <laughs> to like a hundred foot cliff, like we're right. not going off it, we're stuck. And it is cold. And so we make it off that next one. And then luckily we found a route out and got off with the goat. And it was a crazy... With paracord. Yeah, with paracord. Yeah. Which leads me into the story that you were telling me, which I think is really... It's super gnarly. Um, first, you had a rifle blow up on you, right? Yep. And... So give us the background and the the story of this rifle. Where So you're in Tanzania, right? Yep. And what were you using? Like, what were you hunting? What were you doing? Um, so we were in Tanzania. Um, I was hunting with some good clients of mine that I go there every year with. They do two big, two big safaris a year. And so um, on this trip, uh, we had just gotten, we'd just gotten into the hunt. On like day three, we shot a huge lion. And which 
we've done we've done eight safaris there, and this was only the third lion. So we're always hunting lions, but right. it's tough. Like lion hunting is super strict. There's low, you know what I mean, in these massive why, areas. So why is it strict? Like what? Why? What's like what's going on on a lion hunt? Lions just, I mean, they have this reputation built around them, obviously, you know what I mean? They're a cat and that's mm-hmm. what people latch onto. Right. And so um, they've just gotten really strict with the amount of cats being mm-hmm. taken and there's really strict laws on the cats that are being taken, which um, I'm probably going to mess this age up, but they got to be at least five or six years old. Mm-hmm. So on the fly, these PHs have to be able to you know what I mean? They're looking for different characteristics. They're looking for the scarring. I mean, you're looking for a scarred up face, not like a pretty face line. Right. You're looking for drooping, like sagging in the corner of the mouth. Um, you're looking for the color of the teeth, kind of the pigment of the teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, you're looking for chipped up teeth because that's another sign of, right. you know what I mean? Age, chewing on bones. Well, um, how, just wear how, what's, the, what's the long life on a, on a lion? Um... Kind of like a lot of animals, I would say, I mean, they live a hard, rough life. So is it like 10 years? Yeah, like 10 years would yeah. be old. That'd, That'd be, be old. like Got ancient it. lion. Um, but I think there's kind of like a two or three strike rule. So after you shoot the lion, um, you got to pull teeth and do DNA samples and send those in to be tested. Mm-hmm. And so they age all the lions. And so if you're an outfitter, I think you get two strikes on the lion. Um, but also if it's underage, They'll take the lion and I think it's, you know, a 10 or $15,000 fine for the outfitter. Got it. And so it's, it's managed, it's heavily managed these days. You know what I mean? With the specifics on, it's got to be obviously a male lion. It's got to be an old lion and it can't be with the pride. Right. Because if you shoot the pride male, then another male is going to come in, kill all the females and cubs. Really? Well, not, not the females. It's going right. to come in and kill the cubs. So the right. females are going to heat. Got it. Because he just wants, he wants to spread his genetics. That, that's so, interesting. So you kill, you know, you kill a big male mm-hmm. and he's got, you know, five or six cubs. Then you got another male coming in and he's going to kill all the cubs. So it's actually detrimental right. to the lion population. So. Well, are there a lot of lions when you go out there? Are you seeing a lot of lions and then aging them? Like, is it easy to find them or are you? Uh, no, I mean, it depends. So we hunted, um, we hunted a couple different areas, but in a lot of the areas, no, it's tough. And it kind of, it also depends on the outfit that I'm hunting with. They spend a lot of money on anti-poaching. So they've got like year round anti-poaching crews mm-hmm. going around, you know, keeping, and that's one of the reasons why Tanzania is so expensive because right. it's one of the last like wild, wild places in Africa. And it's expensive because they've got to, you know, pay for their own anti-poaching, whether right. that's, you know, having helicopters come in and having three or four crews on land cruisers, just patrolling the area, keeping people out. Because when people come in or encroachment from, you know, the local village, they start bringing cattle in and whatnot and lions start whacking cattle or people then they put out poison and not only does it poison the lions, but it poisons the leopards and the vultures and the jackals. And right. so it's just kind of got like a chain reaction. But um, the area we were hunting, 
is good. It's getting better. They got that area back about five years ago. The lion hunting is starting to pick up, but when they didn't have it, it got poisoned really hard from the cattle. But the other area we were hunting in, I think we had 26 males hit bait on one safari, which is a insane amount of lions. Like there's... Are you just counting them off a camera or... Yeah, so count them off a trail camera. Got it. Which that's another thing that uh, hasn't been... Hadn't been used a ton, you know what I mean, up until recent years, but that's another tool that really helps age the lions. Right. You know what I mean? Because yeah. once they hit the bait, we can really like dive in to the video and photos and really like see the teeth and right. look at its facial features and the scarring and, you know, the its hip bones and its back. You know what I mean? Does it got a suede back? And So where when you're putting in cameras, are you just putting them around the bait? And then what type of bait are you using? Like what what's that look like? Is it hanging? Is it on the ground? Is it... What are you using for bait? It's so it's interesting to me these questions you're asking because these would be things like five years ago I wouldn't mm-hmm. have had any clue. But right. I've I've almost spent I think a year of my life in Tanzania. Wow. And so for bait for the most part it kind of depends on what you're hunting. Like if we're lion hunting, um, in different areas of the concession, like so some of these so, so these areas that we're hunting. Um, they're essentially like game reserves, mm-hmm. but they're dedicated. The government owns them. So the outfitter does not own them. There's kind of like a long-term. You have a license to Yeah, it's there. kind of a long-term like lease mm-hmm. agreement. But that's the scary thing is, you know what I mean? Like the government can be paid off by right. these people and you can lose areas that you've put years of anti-poaching and stuff right. like that into. So it kind of depends where we are and what we're hunting. Um so like if we're down by the lake, um, if we're down by Lake Rukwa, there's certain game that, you know what I mean? The lion are targeting down there. Like for lion, I would say buffalo. Buffalo right. is one of the best. And um, zebra. Zebra is kind of like the secret weapon. Like they love that meat. It's just a really like fatty meat mm-hmm. that they love. And um, if we're up top, for leopards and whatnot, um, there's different areas where like there'll be a lot of hartebeest. So when we find a big cat track in there, we know they're mostly targeting hartebeest. Um, there's other places where impala, where there's a lot of impala. So we know they're hitting that. And then there's some strategy to where we'll kind of mix it up where we'll put something and they'll hit one thing. But then like when we really want to bring one in, sometimes we'll drop the bait and put it on the ground because once we drop it, once we know that they're hitting and coming in consistent, um, you can't hunt at night in Tanzania. That's illegal. So you've got to get them to come in in the daytime. So sometimes we'll like go in early before the evening sit and just like, we'll drop the Buffalo and put the carcass on the ground because when it's on the ground, they know that the hyenas and stuff are going to come in and they don't want anything on that kill. Like the lion will claim it as its own. And so he'll come in just to keep an eye on the bait and to fight the hyenas off. And so that's, so that's one way, like we'll drop it onto the ground right? because then he'll come in to protect it and right. he'll get vocal and start roaring and whatnot, letting everything know that like, this is his kill. Got it. Whereas when a leopard comes in, um, leopards are just the opposite. You'll never hear them calling or making any noise mm-hmm. on the bait. You know what I mean? Cause they don't want to, 
they don't want to attract any attention. They don't want to, they don't want to call anything right. is. Whereas a lion will just get vocal and be like, this is my bait. Like right. if you come in, we're going to fight. So are you killing the animals then for bait? So are you, are, do you go out and kill the buffalo and then, you know, put it out as bait? Or is it something that's already pre-existing with uh, the hunters? Nope. So that's, that's kind of one thing that makes these like old school safaris. Like that's kind of what I would describe we're doing. Like mm-hmm. the old school safari, like how they, how they used to do it. So we're going out and everything we're shooting is what we're eating. Mm-hmm. So the only meat we have out there is the game we're shooting. So we're having, you know, awesome wild game meals right. every, every single day. And then, so, and then there's a portion of the meat. Obviously we can't eat all the meat. Right. And then there's a portion of the meat that we're using for baiting. So like, obviously like the chest cavity, you know what I right. mean? And if we're eating, you know, the hind quarters, you know what I mean? If we're eating the front quarters, then yeah. we'll use, we'll hang a couple of the hind quarters for bait mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Well, so you're you're killing the zebra, the buffalo, or whatever it is. And what are you using? Are you killing them with bow? Are you killing them with rifle? Are you killing them with combination? Um, so Tanzania, um, you can get special permits mm-hmm. to use a bow there. Yeah. But for the most part, it's all rifle. Got it. And we're hunting so much dangerous game that it can be bow hunted and you can apply for a permit. You know what I mean? And get right. an archery permit. But for the most part, we're using big caliber. Uh, I mean, for some of the planes game, maybe we'll have like 300 around, mm-hmm. but for the most part, like uh, 317, uh, 375, um, 416. And then the pH is usually got 500 nitro, 577. Got it. And so you're going out in the zebras, for instance, um, you're eating the zebra. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're going to have like zebra steaks and back yeah. straps and yep. How is that? Like, is it, is it good? Is it good? Is it awesome? Yeah, it's awesome. And funny thing, we actually just, I was in Texas last week at, uh, I host these with my buddy, these like filled the plate classes where we have people come in and hunt. And then we do butchering courses and all the cooking is like wild game. And then I film it all and document the hunts and all the meat processing and cooking and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, we had zebra, it's Texas. We, we they shot a zebra in camp, and we had zebra burgers, and yeah, everyone was blown away. They it's were, good. Yeah, they were awesome. And so, when you're, does it taste the same in Africa as it does out here? Is because obviously some of these guys are going to be eating on the feeders and things like that in Texas. I would imagine they're going to taste a little uh, bit different. A little bit different. Yeah, but, but pretty about similar. The same. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's fucking cool. So, like the buffalo, for instance, when you shoot. A zebra, I would imagine, is a lot like any other animal that I've shot out here, like an elk or something like that. Like it's fairly easy. It's going to, bullets go through it relatively easily. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, like, are these just gnarly, tough animals? Oh these, my gosh. Like, yeah, they're so tough. Right. You just, you keep shooting until they, until they hit. Until they're done. Right. And you always have one ready in the chamber. Like, I've seen so many of these buffalo that it's just motionless, dead on the ground. And you walk up and before you can even blink, they're on their feet, like head down. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. My one I shot, my, uh, I shot a badass old broomed off, like fully like polished boss, like polished slick broken off on this side and busted off on the other side. And, uh, so he was in the swamp. Um, 
And so what I have is I had a, my client got me a 10 day baiting license. Okay. So like on my license, I had like two Buffalo and then I'll have, you know, Impala, Hardee's, a zebra, a warthog, stuff like that. And so when we're all out, like my client will be out with one car and a pH and his wife will, usually I'm with one of the two. And so I'll kind of bounce back and forth between the two of them. But then some days they're doing other stuff. And so I'll go out with another car. Got it. Just because we're hunting this concession that's hundreds and hundreds of miles squared. I mean, so it's hundreds of miles squared. Yeah. I haven't even, yeah, I haven't even, I don't even think I've seen the whole area and I've been there for almost a year, just Mm. like massive areas. And so we just drive all day, just driving and the trackers on the back are spotting game and we're targeting different things and we're checking bait sites. And like, it's a huge process, right? Like there's so many like moving parts going on. Um, and so I was out looking for a Buffalo to get some bait. And, um, so this was the, this was the first one. I'll get into the second one in a second. And so we head to this swamp to where it's just an awesome swampy area to where these Buffalo hang out. There's tons of green grass all around it. It's cool. And so we get it. We're about like 200 yards away and we jump out and we start to walk in and like, right as we get up there, we start glassing the edge, nothing. Don't see him out in the swamp. And then, uh, the pH spots one, a Buffalo up in the trees, just moving. And he's like, he's like, they're going, he's like, they're going to be in the swamp. And so we had a bad wind. So we kind of backed out, circled around them, got all the way up to the swamp. And I would say we saw maybe like two or three Buffalo. And when we got up to the edge, there were like 12 Buffalo in the swamp, all dug boys, big bulls. And so we make our way up and they've kind of got their head down. And so we sneak in and he throws right when we get to the edge of the swamp, he throws the shooting sticks up and there's like two Buffalo, maybe like 45, 50 yards away. I would say a few more at, you know, 75, 80 yards, Mm -hmm. a couple more at hundred, 120. They were all kind of just spread out along the edge. And so there was one with its head down. And so at this point I was using the, uh, the 378. And so I throw it up on the sticks and I ask him, I'm like, what do you, which one do you want me to shoot? And he's like, shoot the one with the head down. The only one I couldn't see what it was, but I've, I've hunted with him so much. I was like, all right. And I was like, and the two closer ones kind of busted us and mm-hmm. they kind of had their head up, like looking around, like they knew something was up. Probably had like five more seconds before they were going to blow. And he goes, it was facing straight away. And he's like, can you put one just like right at the top of its tailbone, right? in it's back. And I was like, yeah things that happened pretty quick. So I wasn't like too jonesed <laughs> up in this moment. Right. And so I put one right where he tells me and just boom, buckle its back end. And it just like goes straight down in the swamp. And he was like, perfect. He's like, jack another one in. And so I go to jack another one in and the bolts just locked. It's jammed. And I'm like, shit. And as I'm doing that, I can see the bull like starting to regain his composure and he's like back up on his front legs. And all of a sudden, like his back legs start working again and he gets up and I'm like, oh my gosh. And so the pH has, he's got a three, seven, five in his hand. And then the tracker behind him is holding the five, seven, seven. And so he hands me the three, seven, five as it's running away, boom, hit it, put another one in him, boom, put another one in him. And he's probably like a hundred yards now. And he's just like, falls kind of like right at the edge, maybe like 10 yards into the swamp, just Mm -hmm. like buried. And so 
we run over there and I grab the other gun back and I'm trying, I'm trying to get this bolt open. And he's like, he's like, all right, we need to get ready. And so I go up on this tree and I'm smashing this bolt handle on the tree, trying to get this thing to open and it won't open. And Lauren's got the five, seven, seven. And so now we're probably like 10 yards from this bowl. And I'm like, this thing's not going to open. And I just shot all the rounds out of the three, seven, five. And no sooner is I'm, I'm like, this thing's not gonna open. Bull is on his feet, head down, coming full on for Lauren. And so Lauren gets up on the five, seven, seven. And man, you can't really, you can't really like describe like the composure and like the situations that these PHs. Right are in. And I mean, I would say it was probably like two seconds that it covered the distance and mud that's three feet deep head down. And they just wait until they just wait until that bead. I would almost say they wait until there's no way they can miss. Right. And so when that Buffalo is like right on the end of their gun. It puts a 700 grain bullet just right through its skull down, boom, skids in the mud, maybe like three feet away from him and just opens a gun. You know what I mean? Like keeps the gun on it obviously for like 10 seconds. Yeah. All right. It's done. Opens it, throws another shell in and he's like, he's down. Just calm, cool, collected. So yeah, Buffalo hunting is wild. And even then, after he put one right in its skull, you know what I right. mean? And dropped it. He's like still watching still it. Watching Just it. like still waiting. Like what's I've that, seen. what's that meat like on a Buffalo? Like, is it good? Is it bad? Is um, it fatty? Is it it's, lean? It's, it's pretty good. I yeah. mean, it's definitely not, it's definitely not, it's definitely not as good as like Buffalo. You right. know what I mean? Like buffalo, the, the buffalo, typical right. like bison, right. you know what I mean? They yeah. would have, but um, yeah, we do a lot of stuff with it. We will cook the back straps. The back straps are awesome. Um, we do uh, like biltong soup. Mm-hmm. So they'll cut the, you know what I mean? Cut the tail off and do like a super slow cooked soup where that right. meat just like falls off the bone. And that's like one of the best soups we have. So right. we shoot a lot of buffalo. So we'll have that, you know. So there's a lot of buffalo. A week. So the, there's a lot of buffalo out yeah. there. And that's, so that's one of the most yep. pervasive big game animals you can use for bait. Yep. And they're a big animal. They're big. What about... um, And so if you use it all correctly, you know, you can get one buffalo can be two or three baits. Got it. You know what I mean? Whereas... And are you taking like a whole hindquarter and are you... Are you skinning it? Like, what's that bait look like when Um, you're doing this stuff? So it depends because... So when we do the first trip in like end of July, August... Um, it's winter in Africa. Uh, right. And so the weather's nice and cool. And so a lot of times we'll leave the hide on. Mm-hmm. But when we do a later trip in August, it's summertime and it's super hot. So we skin them off. We skin them completely out because if we leave the, the hide on, it's an insulator and the baits rot a lot mm-hmm. quicker. So Got we'll it. lose the baits. Interesting. And so we can get the baits to last, you know, in the summer, when we take the hide off, we can get them, you know, to last, you know, a week or 10 days. Whereas when it's cool, you know, they could be up potentially for, you know, a couple of weeks. Right. You know, quite and a then, while. Are you hanging? Uh, and you touched on it a little bit earlier, but so you hanging this stuff from the tree. So the breeze and things like that can yep. like move it across. Yep. So and- we'll hang it up in the tree and there's a specific height that will hang them. And a lot of times we'll do like 
dual baits. Mm-hmm. So we'll have one up high on the tree with a good branch that leopards will feed off. Got it. So they'll get up there and feed off the mm-hmm. top. And then we'll have one hanging low enough. And a lot of times we'll hang it just so the lion standing up can get the bottom, like, you know, foot of Got that it. hind quarter just right. to give them a taste. Right. But don't hang it too low or they'll destroy it like in right. one night and they'll be full and then they'll leave. Got it. So you kind of just like tease them. And then once you know they've been there for a few days and like, they're on it or they're getting close to leaving because they're bored of it, then you drop it. But also you hang it at that height to keep the hyenas away. Okay. So you want, and so sometimes we'll uh, cut the hide and let the hide hang down just a little bit so the hyenas can get to it. Right. Because a lot of times the hyenas will call in the lions. So the hyenas will start, they'll get on it and just start yipping and yapping at each other in the night. And then the lion will hear that and go in and we'll drag all the roads around. So when we first get this, we'll drag the roads, do like these big loops in funnel areas mm-hmm. where we know where we think would be, you know, travel routes or where we've seen lion movement, like their hunting patterns. Right. And so we'll, first we got to get the bait. Then we drag the bait. Then we hang the bait. Then we strategize that. Then something's got to hit the bait. Then once it hits the bait, then we got to go and build the blind. Got once it. the blind's all built, then we got to go sit it the animal's got to come in in daylight hours. Right. It's got to be old enough. It's got to be the right animal. So like, it's a serious process. Yeah, a process. And I mean, there's, I think there was a time we went uh, like three safaris without getting a lion. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? 30 day trips. So like right. 90 days of hunting and baiting. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. not, it's not easy. Like it's like, it's, you know, it's like trying to kill a big bull elk. Right. You know what I mean? Like if you're hunting like specific yeah. old big animal, like it doesn't I mean, 380 plus. Yeah, yeah. It's you're gonna have to you're gonna have to work for it. Right. Well and with that with that type of animal, I mean, where do you even go to find this hunt? So let's say I'm a hunter and I'm like, ah oh, yeah, you know what? I want to go hunt a lion. Do you just get on Google and be like, lion hunting, let me see where that's at. Like, that's crazy. Um, I mean, the first place I would go would be to, not this year, a hunting show. Right. You know what I mean? And just go start talking to right. outfitters. So there's um, SCI, the big show that's yep. usually in like Reno, whatnot. Right. Um, then there's the Dallas Safari Club. Right. Those would probably be the two, those would probably be the two best mm-hmm. if you're looking to do international hunts where right. you're going to have like thousands of outfitters. And then it just depends, uh, you know, there's low fence hunting and high fence hunting and there's places, Tanzania is all. So you can do a high fence lion hunt? Is that, is that a thing? Um, yeah. Wow. And, and that's what all of, that's mostly what you will see in South Africa. Okay. Because it's all... It's a South Africa high-fence lion hunt. South Africa is kind of like Texas. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's all privately owned. It's all big blocks of land. Right. And they can manage things exactly how they want. And there's definitely... There's definitely places... I know people who have went over there and hunted and there's small properties Mm -hmm. to where it's not really much of a hunt. But there's also places where you might have 100,000 acres. And when you think of a lion's home range and whatnot, you know what I mean? You can go out there and have a 
hunt in an animal, you know what I mean? Where it's like in its natural environment, right. you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. hunting and you're baiting and whatnot. But that's what separates Tanzania from South Africa is right. it's like true wild big country. Right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's a fence, there's no fences. Like yeah. People can't afford. I mean, it's just right. massive chunks of land, old school safaris. Yeah. A few years ago, I worked in Botswana a few years ago, like, well, more than a few years ago. So I was out there uh, with the Botswana Defense Force just south of the Okavango. Ooh. And uh, Okavango is like fucking amazing. Yeah. Uh, and so I was training their counter poaching guys. So I was out there working with those guys. I couldn't teach them shit. Like the only thing I could teach them was like how to shoot better, basically. That's but it's interesting because I was out with the uh with the dudes and they all had really deep scars on their legs. Like really deep fucking nasty scars on their legs. And I was like, fuck is that from? And they were talking about how they when they're out in patrol. So they go out on patrol and they hide and they'll find places where poachers are coming in and they'll go out and set up on basically a recon site and they'll be waiting for poachers to come in and so they can basically bust them essentially. And, uh, but the lions will come in and they'll stalk the, these guys and they'll get right up in on their positions and they'll take swat, take a swat at them basically. So they, they can't hear them come in as oh. they're coming in to take them in some of these places. So these guys are out in the Okavango or out and around the Okavango and there's animals fucking everywhere. Like the Delta is yeah full. Yeah. That's one of the main, you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. one of the spots in Africa. You hear about the Serengeti, you hear about the it's fucking Okavango crazy. Delta. And these guys are protecting the rhinos. That's what they're, they're there to do. That's yep. what they, that's what they do. That's their bread and butter. But they would hold flashbangs, which is, uh, it, it basically is a several iterative explosive device that is a non-fragmenting explosive device. It just flashes and makes a big boom. Mm-hmm. So if the lions come in and they get, one of them gets like swatted basically or probed, they'll just drop that flashbang and it goes off like bang, 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 bang. And it'll fucking scare the lions away, right? So Crazy. my story is... I was out just south of the Okavango and I was with these guys and all my Botswana Defense Force guys. And I would, we set up a perimeter, so barbed wire perimeter around the, around the facility. And then we're also doing military. So they're military guys and they're setting up a perimeter and they're doing their thing. And I would leave the wire and I would go for a run like down and around the trails and stuff. And they're like, hey, you can't leave the wire to go for a run. I was like, what? This is a training exercise. It's not a big deal, guys. And they're like, no, you're going to get eaten because there are a lot of fucking lions out here and they will fucking eat you if you're out. Because I would go out for five miles or whatever and I'd be running around yeah. in the fucking... The, and it's not, it's not the desert. It's like a arid, rocky, brushy, you know, really cool, really cool place yep. to go for runs. Like really fucking cool place to go for runs. But... The moral of the story is I couldn't go running out there without a gun truck that would follow me around because the lions, I guess, would fucking stalk me and eat me depending on the scenario. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that's true. That one of the guys that was uh, that was in camp with us, 
he actually showed us the scars this time. And then one of them, uh, he had, he got ripped out of the tent by a lion, grabbed him out, dragged him about like 75 yards. And I mean, you could see the big, yeah, gnarly scars. Yeah, I mean, gnarly scar on his head and then his arms. You yeah. could see where it bit him and just where it was holding onto his arms. And just, I mean, I can't even fathom total darkness in the middle of the night. You're asleep. And next thing you know, you're being yeah. drugged. That's why they the carried woods. those flashbangs. So they yeah. would just drop them and they'd go boom, 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 boom. And the lion would fucking drop them and leave them. Crazy. Right? And these dudes, so talk about a cool trip anyway. Like I'm living out there and I would get up to go take a piss outside of my tent. And I was like, I got up at one night and I heard this like, what in the fuck is this? And I take out my headlamp and it's a fucking puff adder. It's like, (laughs) right? Like a foot and a half away from like my foot as I'm taking a piss and it's making this fucking noise. That was my introduction to a puff adder was its noise, the the puffing that comes from its fucking gnarly. gnarly. And so a few weeks or months later, whenever it was, I was out doing some other shit. And uh, I was like, oh, that looks cool. I'm going to go up and I'm going to climb this like rock spire thing. And I was like, I'm going to, I took the gun truck out there and I'm like climbing on this fucking rock spire. Yeah. And I pull myself up and I see this big gray looking arm thing go like it drags itself right in front of my eyes. It's like this big gray thing. And I just pitched off this little cliff. Cause I was like probably nine feet off the ground. I just fucking pitched off because I knew exactly what it was. It was a black mamba that was <laughs> this fucking rock that I was climbing on. So like a few days before I'm getting out of my tent, I got a puff adder like puffing. I got a black mamba as I'm like climbing. I can't leave the wire because the lions are going to fucking eat me. Yeah. And then I'm driving into camp one night and there's this big fucking snake stretched across the road. And But they I, don't like to hit them because no. the tires... The tires can flip them up into the truck. And so they always freak out. So I you got see out. Stop, stop, stop. But yeah, so exactly. So I stopped and got out, put the lights on it. And it's a fucking giant Egyptian spitting cobra. <laughs> and so like, it's like in one trip, it's like black mamba, puff adders, fucking Egyptian spitting cobras. One night we come out and the we had a bunch of little camp dogs because they were like, oh, the camp dogs are great. Don't worry about it, right? And the camp dogs had caught, a kudu had got stuck in the barbed wire fence and wrapped itself up all in the barbed wire and was like kicking. And the fucking, our camp dogs were literally chewing the fuck out of this thing. But we had kudu the next night. Kudu's awesome. Kudu's awesome. Yeah, Yeah, kudu was awesome. That was the first time that I'd seen a kudu up close was... Cool. And they're cool looking, man. Really cool. They're like crazy cool looking. Yeah. The meat's fucking great. Like even if it was it's incredible, yeah. Yeah. So the the Botswanans were awesome. My last story before we get back into yours is like, so I was cruising around and we would go out to the rhino um, uh, sanctuaries and like I could get as close as I wanted to to the rhinos because I was That's working cool. with the guys are protecting them. So mm-hmm. we went out to this one facility in in Botswana where it has, it's a big high fence and it's got a ton of fucking rhinos in it. 
And yeah. most everybody that goes out there, you can only like look at them through binoculars and things like that. But we drove out and got, I got like 50 yards from a rhino. But I mean, I had these guys like, all the gun trucks were out there with like belt fed machine guns. Yeah, they and don't FNs mess around. Shit. Like that's, no. Those rhinos are, I mean, they don't even tell most people where they are. They're like, they're like, a lot of them are like secret facilities and no one knows it's like locked down. They're fucking crazy. Like yeah. these animals are so, they're, they're like dinosaurs. Yeah. And so for me, like I got 50 yards away from a rhino just like walking up to it and then I got another opportunity with another one who's big pregnant female. And she was just about ready to fucking pop. She was so uncomfortable. just like laying on the ground and her belly was so fucking big that there was just no way you could mistake this thing as a pregnant animal. I mean, the rhinos are big either way, yeah. right? But she was so big and so uncomfortable. She didn't want to get out of the shade or move or do anything. She just sat there while we were like getting close to her and taking That's photos crazy. and shit. But my experience in Africa was Botswana and Senegal, South Africa. I've been to South Africa a few times, but that working with the Botswanans and being that close to the wildlife because we could be as close to the wildlife as we wanted to be. We didn't hunt or anything like that because obviously we're just there to protect. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because I've never, well, one, safaris are super expensive most of the time. So like it's never really been in the, as, a, as an option, but mm-hmm. I've been intrigued by like pH, for instance, people typically, they might not even know what that is. What a professional hunter. Professional hunter, right? So you have to go through this process to become a pH. Yep. Um, which is typically fairly, it's, it's extensive. It mm-hmm. takes years. Yeah. From what I understand. Yeah. There's, you know, shooting tests and written right. tests and it's a pretty big process. And I think you might have to, you know, renew your license and right. you got to have different, I think it's different. You know what I mean? Depending on also where you are in Africa and whatnot, but yeah, depending yeah. on the countries mm-hmm. and things like that. So getting back into your story where, so you're, you fucked your eye up first, right? When you, yeah. So what were you shooting when you, when you, so that was the second Buffalo. Got it. So we were driving around uh, that morning and we checked one of the baits. We found, we'd found these two lion tracks uh, working this road and we, uh, we got out and we followed them on foot for about like three miles, just like trying to figure out the direction we were going. And we thought it was these two younger males that we'd been seeing for a few years now, but you never really know. And so, um, so the day before, so we follow these tracks out, we hang this bait kind of close off to the side of the, one of these dirt roads. And then the next day we were driving around and we checked it maybe like hour and a half, two hours before dark. And there's a huge, there's a huge lion on bait, a huge lion and a younger lion. And so we we're like, holy crap, we need to get a bait. Like they've almost finished this. Like we hung this Buffalo leg high, but it's kind of rotting. Like it's not the greatest bait. And we could see that the lions had been there, you know what I mean? Almost for two days now. Right. And they'd eaten about all they could. And so he's like, we need to get a quick Buffalo. And so we radioed the other car and we were like, we need bait. Like now, like if we don't get a bait here by tonight, these lions are going to leave tonight. They might come in and mess around for another right. couple hours, but then they're gone. And so we take off heading back. Um, the pH was like, where do you want to go? And I was like, I was like, I think we should head back to the swamp. Like we've seen a ton of Buffalo over there. 
And he's like, I don't think we have enough time before dark. And so we start heading that way. And then we got maybe like 30 minutes left at before. And he's like, I don't think we're going to make it to the swamp. And I was, he's like, let's take this other road. He's like, we've seen quite a few Buffalo hanging out down in here. And so we're takeoff driving down this other road. We'd maybe gone like five minutes and I look out my window and I can see a bedded bull, like a hundred yards, just like laying in the open. And so I've got my gun, um, kind of just like strapped in the front seat. Is this the same one that locked up on you? Yeah. Yeah. And so what we thought we'd figured out Mm -hmm. is we went back and, um, another PH finally got it open and his theory was, he's like, oh, he's like, how did you, he's like, how did you put that other shell in there? He's like, did you, uh, he's like, did you manually put it in there? Or is he's like, did you feed it in? And I was like, I was like, well, I was like, I put the first one in there. And he's like, he's like the way he's like, he's like the way I think this gun works. He's like, it's got to feed it in when you manually, you know, he's like, when you put one in the chamber, you know what I mean? And close it, you're kind of like throwing off the system. Got it. And I was like, okay, well, that makes sense. That's what I did. So I'll just put them all in and just make sure I feed them all right out of the magazine. And um, so I see this Buffalo. And so right as I'm like, Buffalo, he slows down. I just bail out and I just take off running. And so I run maybe like 50 yards kind of the tree line. And this bull, when he sees the car, he gets up and he starts working his way into the Miambo and he's like about to go into the trees and he stops. And so I drop down. Um, I like drop down on one knee so I can just kind of like get a free handing rest. Mm-hmm. Boom. And I shoot and I can hear it hit. I don't know where exactly I hit, but I can hear it hit him hard, like in the chest. And so I jack another shell in. And then at this time, the pH is coming behind me. So he like got out of his door and like grabbed the shooting sticks and grabbed his rifle and then but by the time, you know, he was probably like 20 yards behind me. And so this bull starting running, he's run, he's running to the right. And so I pull the trigger again. And then that's really, it didn't, it didn't knock me out, but like my ears were ringing and I kind of like fell back. I was already crouched. And so mm-hmm. I like kind of fell back onto my arm and I was a little bit just like dazed and confused. And the next thing I remember is the PH just like looking at me and he was just like, Oh my God, dude, like, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Like, and I can just like see him holding his face and like, now he's freaking me out. And I look down and it's just like blood is just like streaming down my face, like my arms. And I still don't even really know what's going on. I'm like, okay, something like something bad just happened. Like I'm sitting here on the ground. I don't even know if I had looked at the, looked at the rifle yet. Right. And so he was panicked and I think, so we had a chopper pilot from South Africa who was with us and that was his day off. So he can fly for like six days and then he's got to take a day off. And so we invited him to come out with us. He was just going to be sitting in camp. And so he's a good friend of ours. We were right. like, just come hunting with us. Luckily, His last job, he was a medic pilot on Kilimanjaro, pulling, flying people off the mountain who got sick and or died or whatever. And so he runs up and I looked at him and uh, the PH was in shock. Like I could definitely tell he was in shock. 
And I looked at him and I was like, am I going to, am I going to die? <laughs> like, I don't, I can't see. Right. Yeah. You can't see. I think at this point I had looked at the gun mm-hmm. and I could see the stock was completely split from right. front to back. And so I knew the gun had failed. Right. I wasn't sure what happened, but like the gun exploded. And so I'm like, am I going to, am I going to live? And he just started like pouring water on my face, just like washing everything away to kind of see the damage that was done. And he was like, can you see, he's like, can you see out of your, and I was, can you see out of your right eye? And I was like, no, I can't. I was like, I don't see anything. And he's like, well, he's like, it's probably just from the blood. He's like, your earlobe looks like it's kind of blown off. And he's like, you've got cuts in your face. He's like, I'm worried about your eye, but he's like, you're going to live. Like you're going to be fine. He's like, it's just, you got head wounds, head wounds bleed a lot. Like you'll be okay. Right. And so yeah, so I think at that point they kind of looked at the gun and um we had the chopper pilot was with us, so helicopter wasn't coming to get me. And we were about <laughs> two hours. We we're probably about like two hours from camp. And so I kinda like they wanted to kind of like carry me back to the car, but I was like, I'm fine. And so I like got up and just started walking back over to the car. And um I remember the PH called uh his dad on the sat phone, he was like, well, I got an emergency. Like Dallas is bleeding really bad. Like the gun blew up. I don't know exactly what happened, but like, it's not like right. we need to get him to a hospital. And I remember I looked at, uh, looked at the pH and I was like, can you, I was like, can you go see if you can find my Buffalo? And yeah. he's like, he's like, we need to get you back to camp. And I was like, I was like, we can't do anything tonight. I was like, <laughs> the hospitals for, I was like, I'll sit here. I was like, just go look. And, um, so he went for like maybe like 15 minutes or so and, um, caught up with it again and got another, got another, I think it was, I think it was kind of like quartering away, but he got another one into it. And so he was like, all right, he's like, we're good. He's right. like, there's for sure. He's like, I for sure heard your first shot hit. Who knows what happened the second shot? I'm assuming the bullet did not make it to the animal. Maybe, right. but a lot of pressure went yeah. in other directions. Right. And so he's like, all right, we'll fly you to the hospital tomorrow and we'll come back and find the buffalo. And so we got back to camp. And from what uh the helicopter pilot kind of just started picking up the pieces of the gun. And from what we found out is I think it was just a hand load that had been overloaded with oh, yeah. powder. And mostly, I would say like 75% of the blast went out the bottom. Right. Which is crazy when you think about it because like it was right in front. I was shooting left-handed because I'm left-eye dominant. Right. So I had my right eye closed. Right. But that blast just like, all of it went just like right in between my two hands. And then there was a little strip of metal on the top of the action that blew apart. And so the pressure and the energy that came out the top of the action, the action held together for the most part, Mm -hmm. which when it doesn't, that's typically when you've got serious issues because that action's coming right in your face. But that, uh, that little strip of metal shrapneled and yeah, I had, I kept feeling something in my mouth and I thought it, I thought it was like a chunk of my jaw, just like sitting in the back of my mouth. But when we got back to camp, um, one of the pieces of shrapnel, it was like a, probably about an inch long, but pretty skinny. 
just shot straight through my lip, almost like an arrow and was just like resting (laughs) in my mouth, like sitting in the back. And then I could tell I had another piece up by my eye and one went in right to the right of my eye and exited right next to my temple. And then I had a couple other pieces in my cheek. So they cleaned me up. Vision was still a little rough in this eye. Went to a doctor um, in Tabora. So we flew the chopper like two hours away. That was another crazy, I mean, just in this little shack of a room, like water coming out of the ceiling, what you would expect. Yeah. And he was like, you, he's like, I'll clean you up, give you some antibiotics, like a tetanus shot. But he's like, you probably want to get these, this metal taken out in the States. Like, you don't want to do it here. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't. Right. (laughs) But this is still, we're still on like the first week of a month long trip. Right. And so he says all is good, looks at my eye and there's no like visible damage to the outside. Like it's a little bit bloodshot, but everyone was like, your eye looks fine. Like, I think, you know, it took... There's nothing that looks like it went inside your eye, but I think your eyes just like bruised. So they're like, we think your vision should kind of come back. And at this point I could start, I could see again, but it was just kind of a little bit foggy in this right. eye. So I was like, well, I still have my eye. So that's good. And so flash forward to last week, I went to like the fifth specialist about my eye and they, uh, they always told me there was a couple from the previous x-rays I'd gotten, they said there was like a piece of metal um, above my lip and another piece of my cheek, but they didn't think they really needed to be taken out. Right. But I just wanted to get like a proper x-ray here in the States. And so I take, get it and go to the eye doctor and he comes in and sits down with kind of like, he's like, all right, we need to talk. And I'm like, okay, like, are we going to take this metal out? And he was like, so you have a, really big piece of metal inside the cone of your eye. What? And I'm like, uh, I was like, I've been to like five doctors. I was like, <laughs> where, since when? And right. he's like, it's always been there. He's like, that piece that um, the last couple doctors or the one in Africa and the other one assumed was in your cheek. He's right. like, he's like, I can show you the piece that's in your cheek and your mouth. He's like, you see these little dots? And it's like, a pencil dot. Like it's nothing. You can't even. And then he's like, do you see that piece? That's like, looks like the size of like the top of a golf tee. You know what I mean? He's like that piece. He's like, I don't know how it got there, but he's like, it went like inside the corner of your eye and missed your eyeball went in between the muscles that are connected to your eye and it's sitting inside the cone of your eye. And you can feel that? Up against the nerve that's running, that takes your vision from your eye to your brain. He's like, the piece of metal is sitting in there inside the cone. And you couldn't feel that? No, I never could feel. Wow. And so, yeah. And I was like, what do we do about that? And he's like, he said, I'm not going to operate on it. He's like, you can still see. And... I'm really worried. He's like, the only way I can think of get that out is just, we got it. We can't go in from your eye. He's like, we'd have to drill into your skull. <sighs> what? But he's like, if it touches like that piece of metal, if it touches anything in there, like you could lose your vision. And he's like, but he's like, but you can't get an MRI because that is just going to scramble your eye. Right. And so he's like, I personally, he's like, it doesn't look infected. He's like, 
I'm not going to take it out because I don't want to go in there and then you lose your vision in this right. eye. Yeah. But he's like, there's a couple specialists that you, you should go see and see what their opinion is. But my opinion is just leave it and no MRIs. I was like, <laughs> so did you leave it? So this was like a week ago. Oh fuck. Yeah. This is a week ago. Yeah. So it's still, it's still, yeah, it's still in there. And I don't know. I haven't gone and I haven't seen this specialist at the U. I had a tech hunt in Texas and right. Christmas. And, you got some hunts. Yeah. You got, you got other shit you got to do. Yeah. I don't have time for this. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the first doctor was like, he's like, it's in a really sketchy spot. <laughs> like, I don't feel comfortable going in there. Like there's a lot of, like your vision is riding on. He's like That's the piece of metal. Nuts. He said the piece of metal is literally like sitting against the nerve. Like it's just sitting there. It went sideways in between the muscles that move your eye. Didn't hit any of those. Didn't hit my eye. And it's just sitting inside the cone. Well, it, besides the fact that you still have a piece of metal in your eye, you also survived a, a helicopter crash. Yeah. Which was when? Three days after this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you get your eye fucked up. You, or you, your, your gun blew up, right? Yep. And then three days after you were in another helicopter doing what? What were you doing? Um, so the day that, uh, the day after the accident happened, we were actually supposed to be going to a bordering area where we also had permits in. Right. Back where we got the first line. Mm-hmm man, this is a crazy story. And so there are these other two lions that they'd been following for a long time. These two ancient males, like not pretty lions, like Mm -hmm. not, you know, nice looking mane, like scroungy, huge body. And these two old males had just been killing lionesses and cubs for, for years. Like they tracked these, they just seen these two big tracks and it was all in a similar area. Like a pride would come in and then they would be finding dead cubs and females and they weren't seeing these lions though. They would just come in and just like wreak havoc and leave. So they're just hanging together doing this. Yeah. So they just go around and just wow. mess with the area. Right. And so uh, the PH's dad called us and he said, we just found uh, two dead lionesses and five dead cubs. And he's like, and there's these two big male tracks leaving the area. And he said, and they just hit the bait, the same bait site that we shot the first lion off like two weeks before. And so we go in there. This was wild. Go in the first night, um, see one of them next morning, get up at three, drive in. And we have what we call like a walk-in approach. Mm -hmm. And so we essentially just like build this like silent dirt trail, like two or 300 yards into this big grass blind, you know what I mean? That's covering us. So we can just sneak in in the dark because usually those lions can't shoot at night. So usually they'll be on the bait right at first light. Really? And so we go in and the first one is on the bait. And so we see this, we see this lion. Um, PH's uh, dad is going to close the door and he hears something and he looks out the corner and this monster lion like 
is coming through. It's like 10 yards away, working its way around the back of the blind. So it saw us. <laughs> it saw us in the dark. It was just like bedded off to the side Shit. and saw us coming in and it was coming. Like it didn't know what we were. Like we had a good wind, but it was coming in around the side. And so I remember he looked over and he was like, he's like, it's coming in the blind. Like get your gun. And we're like, what? You know what I mean? Like we're right. setting up, like trying to, like I'm getting the camera set up. And he's like, no, no, like get the gun. It's coming in the blind. And so his son gets up looks out and he's like, holy shit. Like this thing's like nine yards away, like monster. And so he looks over at our client. He's like, get your gun. He's like, he's like, put your gun through the crack of the door. It's just grass. Right. He's like, put your gun through the crack in the door and shoot it. And so he puts his gun through the crack in the door and he's like, shoot it. He's like, I can't see it. And like, it was so close that like you're looking, you're looking over the top of it. Right. And so I'm kind of standing there, but there's no like, we only have like three holes in this right. blind to look through. You know what I mean? Like we want it to be enclosed. Like there's a bait. Like if the lion's not at the bait, we're not going to shoot it. Right. And so all of a sudden uh, he motions our client. He's like, step outside the door and shoot it. It's like six <laughs> yards away. And so he, the client steps out the side of the door and I'm kind of inside the blind and I can't really see it. And uh, his dad shoves me out the door. He's like, get out there and like pushes me out the door with my camera. And as I get out, now the lion like sees both of us and is probably like six yards away. And so right as I step out, the lion roars <laughs> and I'm like, oh, like I'm waiting for it to like hit yeah. me, like knock me down. Right. And he's like, shoot, shoot, boom. So the client shoots boom, that I'm just like seeing flashes of the gun going off. And then I like see the lion like 40 yards away, kind of just like walking. And he's like, we miss. Like, he's like, did you hit it? And he's like, I don't know. Like it happened so fast. And he's like, and so we walk out there and like, there's no blood. Oh, fuck There's off. no blood anywhere. And it was like, oh my gosh. Like we've, we've put in all this work. And so- we look for blood for like 30 minutes. Nothing. Missed him. And it's like, this thing's gone. So we're walking back. The Land Cruiser comes in like 100 yards behind the blind. We're getting into the Land Cruiser and one of the trackers is like, it's like, Simba, Simba, Simba. Look down and the lion is on the bait. <laughs> Jump out, run back down to the blind, <laughs> run back down to the blind, get in the blind, boom, smoke this lion. Runs off into the trees. As it runs off into the trees, the other lion comes out, walks over, sees it's, you know what I mean? Like it's, right. it's, it's brother, it's whatnot. And like the dominant lion and realizes that now he's like top shit. Right. And so he like starts like making a scrape and it walks into the trees. That one's gone, but it kind of messes them up when you take two away. You know what I mean? Like you want to try and take them both if you can. Right. And so uh, the PH's dad, legendary guy, starts calling. <sighs> like there's another lion on the bait. Calls this other lion back <laughs> out of the brush. This thing comes out, shoots the second lion, dies 30 yards away from the first lion. Nuts. It was these, the these are monsters. These are the, is this the picture that you sent me? Is um, this one of the yeah, lions? Yeah, so this was the one. So 
there we shot three lions right off the same bait. That's fucking insane. It was it doesn't even it, it doesn't even make sense. And for like the amount of time we've done it, like to shoot it and then see it again, like that now it doesn't, you know what I mean? It doesn't happen. It's like you shoot at a big animal, like it's old, it's big, it's smart yeah. for a reason. Like that's a lot of times they'll just go nocturnal, you know what I mean? And I'll never be seen again. So that all happens. I mean, first we have the first lion. Right. And then we have the gun incident. And then we have the double lion. So it's just like, holy cow. Like this is the craziest right. trip. We've shot as many lions this trip as we've shot in seven safaris. So, I mean, it was like, right. we were just like riding this yeah. high, like this never happens. And so go back to camp. Um, and the next day we're just like, all right, well, we've pretty much accomplished like... Right. The last thing we'd want to get is like a giant leopard because this place right. is like money. Like we'll get like 20 giant leopards on bait every trip. Right. And so we're like, all right, well, let's just like take it easy. Um, let's go fishing. So like there's some waterfalls. What kind of fishing do you? Um, so we were just down like there's uh, at the falls, the Rungo River mm-hmm. that we hunt like crocs and hippos and everything in. Um, there's this one place where there's a big pool and there's these huge catfish. So there's huge catfish and there's also tiger fish. Oh, nice. Which are not super, none of them were giant, not like some of their other areas. Right. Um, but I mean, they're still rad. And so, yeah. So the pHs, the two pHs are kind of, I mean, we're all around, you know, 30 years old. So they're good buddies of mine and their wives were in camp, um, just kind of hanging out. They flew in to just come down for like, couple weeks because these pHs are usually out in the bush for like, you know, six months straight. And so, yeah. And our clients were there. We were all just hanging out, fishing, getting sunburnt. Um, and then it was time to leave. And so we kind of just like split up and the client was like, I kind of want to go just for a little drive tonight, maybe see if we can find some Buffalo. And so I was like, all right, I'll go back with you. And then, uh, and his wife, and the chopper pilot and the assistant, I'll go back with you so I can get like camera stuff ready. And then you can come back and pick up the two couples after they've like packed up, you know, picnic table and stuff like that. And so we take off. And I mean, we've had the, I mean, we've always had a chopper, right? Every safari. We usually have a chopper that just like, it's such big country that it just helps like with transportation. Like we can move around and also during the safari, we're also using it for anti-poaching. So we'll get the full-time anti-poaching crew that's around and they'll come jump in the chopper and drive around with their uh, GPSs and we'll drop pins on like all the fishing and illegal hunting camps and we'll drive around and just look for smoke. You know what I mean? Like random where we know there isn't going to be anyone. And so we take off from the falls like we've done a a thousand times and we turn the corner and as we turn the corner, we're kind of just like, we're going down the river, just kind of gaining altitude because uh, where we kind of lift up and then we do a bank and then we usually turn around and then come back over the falls and just kind of follow the Rungu River back to camp. And so we turn the corner and this is maybe like, 10 seconds into the flight 
and we're kind of like just starting to climb, but still we're probably only like maybe 200 feet off the river. And all of a sudden I hear something above us that it was a really crazy noise. It sounded, I would describe it like maybe like a turbo blew up, just like, and so I remember we all kind of like looked up and I knew it wasn't a good noise, but I definitely didn't think like we just lost the engine. Right. Like that wasn't my first thought. And then right after I heard the noise, all of a sudden I could just like feel the helicopter start like fishtailing, mm-hmm. but I could tell that the pilot was like correcting it and like right. keeping us pretty straight, but I could see that he was kind of fighting it. Mm-hmm. And so that was probably like another second and a half. So it had maybe been like three seconds after the noise. And next thing I did, I remember looking, I was sitting in the back facing forward and I remember looking out the windshield and I could see that maybe we were like 50 feet above the river at this point and we were coming down fast. And I would say by like second four, I didn't even have my headset on at this point. Like that's how fast this all happened. I just put my seatbelt on right before we heard the engine. And probably at second four, it was just close your eyes and just like brace for impact. And then by five seconds, we were in the river and we'd hit boom and we'd spun out. And I just remember opening my eyes and like, first off, like looking down at myself and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm alive. Like I don't, I can see all my limbs. And then I remember looking over at my client's door. We were kind of up at an angle. So client's wife was across from me. Right. And she was shocked, but like, I could see that she was like conscious and good. And we look over and her husband is in the river, like door ripped off. He's in the water. And so I kicked our door open. We jumped out. I remember grabbing him and dragging him over to the sandbank. So we went straight into the river, which was probably like three feet deep in sand, but much better than the 50 foot tall trees that were right on the edge of the river. And so I drug him over the edge. He had a big cut on his head, but he was talking to me and he was, I could tell he was in shock, but like, he was still pretty conscious. I was like, you know, are you okay? And he was like, yeah, I'm okay. Like, I can't see my glasses are gone and my head's bleeding, but I was looking at his head and I was like, you'll be, you'll be okay. Like it's a bad cut, but. And so then I could, there was still screaming in the chopper. And so his client's wife, her back kind of locked up right when like the adrenaline wore off, right? when we got on the side. So I laid them down in the sand and then went back over and I went up to the co-pilot and I could see the skid on the chopper was snapped off to right. like a knife's edge. Right. And it was right up against his side. And I was looking at it and I was like, oh my gosh, like, is this like go in, sitting right? inside of your body? Yeah. And so I kind of like lifted him up a little and I could see there was no blood or anything, but he just started screaming. And I instantly knew either his pelvis was broken or his back was broken. And so I was like, all right, I was like, you got to stay here. But he was kind of like halfway, like hanging into the water. And so I ripped out one of the back seats and propped that under him in between the skid and him. And so he was kind of just like resting there. And then I looked over at the pilot and there was no floor where his legs were. 
the floor and the pedals had been ripped off. They were back and his legs were just kind of like hanging in the water Mm -hmm. through an empty hole. And his back was locked up. And so he couldn't move, but he was talking to me. I'm like, are you good? And he's like, I'm good. Like my back's messed up, but I'm, I'm fine. He's like, please like help make sure everyone else is okay. So I knew the other three were okay, but I was like, it's like, we need some help. Like the chopper came from South Africa and there's no planes getting in. You know what I mean? Like it's getting dark. There's no lights on the runway. It's dirt strip. And the only helicopter in Tanzania is when you're the we're in is crashing the river. Right. And so I start running back towards the falls because I know everybody's still there. When I got about halfway there, I finally got someone, uh, someone to answer back. And I was just screaming like, we need help. We need help. And so they answered back and I could tell they were starting to come this way. And so I ran back. They got there maybe like 30 minutes later with a sat phone. We'd radioed camp. Uh, his dad had come back after the lion hunt with us. My client asked him, you know, will you come and hang out with us for a while? And so he rallied everyone in camp, got like six land cruisers in like 45 minutes. He said he'd gotten like clothes for everyone, took all the mattresses off the bed for like grab stuff to start building stretchers. And so it probably took them like two and a half hours to get down to where we were, but you could only get down there with a helicopter. And so then they had to carry all the stuff down. We got, we'd been sitting there for like three hours, just like, trying to like keep everyone conscious, like keep them cool, like made some makeshift tarps to try and keep the sun off people, getting them water. And so three hours later, they got there, started building stretchers, got people that had been laying in the river, got them in some dry clothes. Um, Then it was probably another, you know, two or three hours getting the stretchers built and then hiking people back up the mountain to get to the cars where they were ripping all the backs seats and everything, the toolboxes out of the cars so we could lay people down in the back. So we got everyone into the back of the cars and I could see, I could see lightning coming and I was like, it hadn't rained on us in like three weeks. And so about two hours, uh, about two hours into the drive, we got hit with a, full on monsoon, like soaking everyone in the back of the cars, lightning. And it ended up raining. I think it rained five or six inches that night. So the last car with the people with the back injuries, it took them six hours to get back to camp. So they got back to camp at like three in the morning, frozen, soaked. Right. We had like makeshift IVs set up, you know what I mean? Like trying to get people dried out. But then we got to get medical planes in in the morning, but the runways, the runways completely covered in mud. And so when morning came, we got all the land cruisers out, just trying to pack the runway down. So these, uh, so the caravans could land driving up and down. Yeah. Just driving up and down. And then when the planes landed, like they stopped fast, like it was soft, (laughs) they'd been flying. I mean, obviously it's the, it's the pilot's call. And so they were like, no, no, we could, we can make it out, but we're only going to take half the people. Like usually we'll take out eight and they're like, we'll take four max per plane. And so got everyone out back to, uh, Arusha and went and 
yeah, the next day I went and got scanned again and stitched everyone up, got what happened to their what happened to the pilots and like what were their injuries? Um, so uh the main pilot, um, he had two he got a small fracture in one of his vertebrae and then just two really deep cuts into his knee, like deep through the muscle and tissue and whatnot. But um he's doing good. And then yeah, terrible. Uh this last week, um the other pilot, the one that shattered his vertebrae, he actually, yeah, got a call and he actually passed away from a blood clot. Wow. It was done. I mean, he had gone through surgery and everything was good and was back home, kind of, I think, just kind of beginning the physical therapy part right. of things. And blood clot took him out, you know, which is tragic, but you never, you know what I mean? Just one yeah, of those things never, you never know. Like it just, it happened. Something got loose and, Worked its way to the wrong place. It's fucking wild. Yeah. That 30 days. And how long ago was that? Um, Maybe a month ago. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, not too long ago. Because I seen you um, right after that, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I saw you maybe like a couple weeks. Yeah. And uh, so when do you go back? So this is the first year. He's not going to, he's not doing the August trip. Right. Um. But he's actually he just messaged me. He just shot a giant bear in Romania. He's still got broken ribs. He's almost 80 years old. Solid. Yeah, he's just a legend. Like he's he's just like, this is my passion. Like right. this is what this is what I'm gonna do when I can't do this anymore. Like that's when I'm gonna die. Right. And so he said, We'll be back next October, 30 days, chopper. Everything. And he's like, everything. But um, what's your next hunt? Um I go back to Texas in about a week for some more just fun. Texas is the best. And then I got a desert sheep and mule deer on Tiburon Island. Oh, nice. At the yeah. end of January. And then working, I think I'm going to Tajikistan in February for Marco Polo and another kind of markhor, the biggest species of markhor in Tajikistan. It's fucking badass, dude. Like the the story that I wanted to get to, because that's like that's 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 the high point of this episode. Cause it was like when I heard that story a few weeks ago, I was like fucking blown away. And the fact that you still you have pictures. So like yeah. if we can get some of those pictures and we can For sure. post them inside this episode, that'd be badass because you you got epic pictures of this yeah. this this thing. Like Yeah, I wasn't sure at first. Like I had my camera there and right. I was like, well, first off the camera I had on me, I found, I found it in the river. I dug it out and it was just like underwater, like six inches under the sand, under the water. Like right. the lens was just completely shattered, but I had another camera in my backpack, which I pulled out and I wish I would have filmed more. You know what I mean? Like I wish yeah. I would have filmed, but at the same time, like when it was all happening, I was like, I don't know if these people are dying. You know what right. I mean? I was like, don't I don't want to do I don't yeah. be the one like walking around, but Closer to the end when I figured out, I was like, all right, everyone, everyone seems stable. I got it out and snapped like a few hundred photos yeah. just because I was like, which at the end, everyone was like, did you take pictures? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I course. got pictures. Yeah. Well, it's an epic story, man. Like we'll have you back and give us another update on some of your other, some of your other hunts that you're going to do. Yeah, that'd but, be awesome. Uh, and if you guys, uh, 
check uh, check Dallas out on his IG. What's your IG? Uh, Dallas Amar. Yeah. So check him out on his IG. Uh, obviously, you can DM him if you have any questions like uh, sure. hunting, photography, video, and stuff like that. Uh, and obviously, you know, he's been around, so he's seen a few things. So I'm sure that he would more than happy ask quite or yeah. answer questions. No, definitely. Cool. Thanks, Alice. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, buddy. 